Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm great for each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to give us a quick listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever and whenever you hear us. And on this edition of the show, we're going to talk to author and chairperson of the South Florida chapter of the Society of Baseball Research, Mr. Sam Zigner. His three books chronicles the history of baseball in South Florida, including the original Miami Marlins, a minor league baseball team that was part of the International League in the 1950s and 60s. Also, later in the show, we'll send a shout out to one of the great American sports traditions that takes place every summer in the little town of Williamport, Pennsylvania. Of course, we're talking about the Little League World Series, where this week in 1947 was the first ever Little League World Series. And once again, we have the home field apparel top five events that celebrated anniversaries this past week in sports history, which includes the opening of an Olympic Games that is best known for a horrific tragedy and one of the most controversial ends to a basketball game in the history of the sport as well as the as well as a baseball legend who was banned from baseball for gambling so sit back and pump up the volume and you're listening to the historically speaking sports podcast a proud member of the sports history network at the sports history network we're all about the sports yesteryear and so we're pleased to introduce you to row one an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full Row One catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, 
you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. And we're back. And you are listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. And we have a special guest on board with us today. And this kind of proves our relationship pretty much proves that baseball has this unique ability of connecting people and connecting cities and time that you really don't realize. Here, check this out. Okay. The Miami Morris, the guy by the name of Sam Zigner is on with us today and baseball. And he's, talked a lot about and wrote a lot about the Miami Marlins of the International League and other teams that were based in South Florida. Now, Miami Marlins was a member of the International League in the 60s, 50s and 60s. They eventually moved out of Miami to Atlanta, which they became the Atlanta Crackers. I learned all of this in doing research. They later left Atlanta for Richmond. And then they returned in 2008 back to the Atlanta area to play as the Gwinnett Braves. Now they're the Gwinnett Stripers. Believe it or not, I live 15 minutes away from their ballpark, Cool Ray Field. So this is a way that this is an example of how baseball and baseball history connects people. I live not too far from the ballpark of a team that this man knows so very well. Sam, glad to have you on board this morning. Thank you for having me, Dana. Pleasure to be with you. You t- now, let me. You've got a lot of titles, not only book titles, but you're also the chairperson of the South Florida chapter of the Society of American Baseball Research. That's a pretty cool organization. Tell us about that organization, if you don't mind, especially the South Florida chapter. Okay. Well, it's an organization that has been going. I think it goes back to the early '70s. Uh, it's a, a group of people. I think we have about 6,000 members worldwide now, uh, a little over that. And people that are dedicated to researching baseball, people that are into baseball statistics, even people that are just fans of baseball are part of the organization. As far as our chapter, we usually hold uh, meetings every couple or three months. We have guests on. We've had umpires, ball players, authors uh, through Zoom meetings, similar to what you're doing here. And um, basically, a lot of that changed because of the COVID. We started doing Zoom meetings instead of in-person meetings. And um, it's just, it's just a, a great organization. If you love baseball and are part of it, uh, it's guys that, and women too. We have a lot of women in the organization that are just, they have a dedication and a love for our national pastime. Now, you've written three books. Um two of which have the coolest base, the coolest title for any baseball book I've ever heard. Uh, baseball Under the Palms. To me, that just sounds like a slice of heaven for me. You got baseball and then coconut palm trees. That's, that's perfect for me. That's, that's my heaven. I, I love that title. You have two volumes of this. You have the early years, which from 1892 to 1960, and then Baseball Under the Palms Volume 2, which you just recently released, 
1962 through 1991. And then you have another one, the Forgotten Marlins. Now, we're not talking about the Miami Marlins of Major League Baseball, but we're talking about the minor league Miami Marlins of the International League, 1956 through 1960. You know, first of all, you're based in South Florida. What got you, I mean, for obvious reasons being in South Florida, but what was some of the, what was the one thing that made you, that inspired you to write these books? Okay. Well, you know, I'm not originally from Florida. I came here in 2001 and of course, loving baseball, went to games, got to know people in the area, so forth. Being in Sabre, I was around a lot of people who were uh, attached to baseball or knew a lot about baseball. And the one thing that I found, and this is interesting, is, as you know, Miami is a very transient area. People come and go, move. A lot of people are new here. But not a lot of people knew about the history of Miami baseball. It's kind of like history started in 1993 with the launch of the Florida Marlins. But uh, as a a researcher and baseball guy, I started looking into, well, where did all this come from? And I went back, a lot of research, and baseball actually goes back as far as 1892 in Miami. That's when they started with local baseball and which grew into outlaw leagues, which were a form of minor leagues, but weren't uh, approved by the National Association. Eventually that went into uh, the uh, National Association approving a team in Miami in 1927. The Miami Magicians were the very first officially approved minor league team. Uh, They went from 27 to 28. And then there was a gap in time, of course, you know, the depression came along and so forth. Uh, And then baseball started up in the 1940s with the uh, Florida East Coast League which grew into the Florida International League, which was significant because one of the teams that it brought into the league and why I got the International League name was the Havana Cubans joined the league. And Miami actually supported two teams then. You had the Miami Sun Sox and you had the Miami Beach Flamingos. So uh, that league uh, ran from 1946 to 54 and it folded, unfortunately. But Triple A baseball came to Miami, which you were referring to later with the Miami Marlins, which was the very first Marlins. And that was my first book. I wrote about the forgotten Marlins. What was fascinating, why I got into that is uh, a lot of people didn't know this. Satchel Page pitched for those Marlins for three seasons, 1956, 57, and 58. The team, when they started, they moved it from the Syracuse, New York. It was the Syracuse Chiefs. And the owner who was Bill, uh, who was uh, Sid Solomon Jr. He brought in to launch the team, Bill Vec, who's like a legend and icon in baseball. Absolutely. And Bill Vec came into town. And of course, now you know how Satchel Page came into town because Bill and Satchel had a very close relationship going back to like the 40s. And, you know, Satchel pitched for his team when he owned the Cleveland Indians, uh, 1948. Satchel even pitched in the World Series that season. So uh, Satchel came to town in 56, and, and it was a huge success. Um, the team eventually, though, after Satchel and Bill left, unfortunately, uh, attendance slowly tapered off. Uh, the team struggled financially, and in 1960, that's where the International League team ended. Uh, getting, there was a gap in time. And so this book, the first book, The Forgotten Marlins, kind of inspired me to do a complete history of the of Miami baseball, the minor leagues. So uh, 
my wife and I actually worked on this book together. If you'll notice, there's two names on the title of the book. Uh, my wife, Barbara, and I uh, worked on this, on both books. And we started uh, actually with the early years. That was Baseball Under the Palms, our first one. And then we followed that up with volume two. Uh, the most recent book uh, follows the Marlins as they began again in 1962. And just to give you an example, uh, in talking to people, not a lot of people know this, but Ferguson Jenkins was a member of the 1962 and 63 Miami Marlins. Wow. Very rarely do I run into a person that knows that. Wow. See, I mean, I mean, I could about imagine the amount of great players that had came through South Florida, you know, with the mind with the different Miami teams, because there were so many different Miami teams. You know, you had talked about the Marlins, I mean, and, and like most people you had just you had mentioned that a lot of people, myself included, thought that time in Miami, you know, baseball history began in 93, because I like one of the first people to buy a Miami, uh, Florida Marlins hat when it came out, the teal hat. I was like one of the first people to oh, buy yeah. one, because I thought, oh, that is nice. That is sweet. So I bought that, and I became a Marlins fan, you know, in the early years with Jeff Conine and, and, and that group, um, and winning the World Series. But Interesting at running across you, I became so interested while doing research for this about all of the stuff, all of the baseball history that took place in Miami. Uh, you mentioned Satchel Page, and I read that, you know, they had the largest crowd ever for a baseball game, still to this day, if I'm not mistaken, when Satchel Page pitched, they had to move the game to the Orange Bowl. They were playing at Bobby Maduro Stadium, if I'm not if I'm remember correctly, during that time. They had to move it to the Orange Bowl, right, because of the amount of people and the amount of fan interest that was there, and they had to the, the configuration of it. What, of, of course, the Orange Bowl is a football field, not really conducive for baseball, so they had to like make a lot of different, you know, adjustments to the field and the fencing and everything else to make it work, but. You're Bill Beck, who is a master promoter, who that's what people know him, know him for. You know, he was the mastermind of bringing Satchel Page in, and boy, did it work. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about that game. Uh, they shoehorned, as you said, the field into the Orange Bowl. Uh, it was an event that they actually had entertainers. As an example, Cab Calloway performed there, Merv Griffin, uh, Margaret Whiting, just to name a few. Uh, a lot of baseball dignitaries there. They had a crowd of over 51,000 people that they put into the stadium. And they had to make special um, uh, arrangements to the field, uh, ground rules, because the fences literally, when I spoke to Bob Bowman, who was a member of the outfielder of the team, during that game, he was playing so shallow because he said my back was practically against the outfield wall that he actually threw a runner out of first on a line drive. That's how <laughs> how shallow he was playing in the outfield uh the most of the dimensions were like uh 300 i don't remember the exact dim dimensions off the top of my head but basically it was about 300 feet down each line but to wow. get a home run you had to hit it over a certain area past the fence so wow only uh, one guy hit a home run in the game that was benny Tompkins, who later became an nfl referee <laughs> and Satch, by the way in that game had a double he had a hit before he came out of the game. 
Wow. See, I mean, that's, that's some of the great stories that you would run across, you know, in, in your book, as well as other, uh, as well as other information dealing with my baseball in South Florida. Um, well, I'm, I'm always curious because you never really hear about it. And maybe you know a little bit about this. Were there okay. ever any Negro League teams based in South Florida, do it, you know, during the time of the Negro Leagues? Yeah, there was the uh, Miami Giants, which was a barnstorming team. They kind of served as a minor league team uh, for the Indianapolis Clowns. A lot of players went on to play uh, from Miami. And, and, you know, back in those days, a lot of teams barnstormed across the country. Miami was one of them, and it was conducive for baseball. They played at a park uh, that no longer exists in Miami anymore. Miami anymore. There is, a, interestingly, a uh, mural on a wall where it was located, and they have a picture of a lot of the famous players. You know, Josh Gibson played there, uh, so forth, Satchel. And um, it was called Dorsey Park. That's where the, the Negro League games were played. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, as, as the Major League Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, the Negro Leagues faded out. But at one time, the Miami Giants were one of the most uh, recognized teams in the nation. They toured from coast to coast and even into the Caribbean islands. Now, you see, I mean, when you talk about Miami and you, and you talked about Dorsey Field, another stadium that is, is Bobby Maduro Stadium, known as Miami Stadium. You talk about that ballpark. Okay, I'll give you a, a really interesting story how that all started. That park was opened in August of 1949. A man by the name of Jose Aliman, who was from Cuba, uh, he was uh, ill at the time. His son was, I believe, 18 years old at the time. He built the ballpark for his son and gave him ownership of the Miami Sun Sox of the Florida International League. So that park opened in 49, like I said, in August. They opened up against the Havana Cubans. And it was really the state of the ball, uh, uh, state of the art ballpark at the time. It had this unique cantilever roof, so no matter where you sat in the ballpark, you didn't have any posts or girders blocking your view. And during the summer, of course, underneath the roof, you didn't, you know, how Miami is. It rains every afternoon in the summer. You didn't have to worry about that. So um, he basically he owned the stadium. I think it went until about '58 before the city of Miami went in and they bought the stadium. Um, then that was, uh, set the, of course, you know, we had the, uh, Marlins were playing there at the time in the international league. They actually didn't rename the, uh, Bobby Madurio stadium until many years down the road. It was called Miami stadium for many years up until, uh, I think it was into the eighties, if I remember right, uh, before they named the stadium after him. And, uh, the stadium of course, sadly doesn't exist anymore. It was torn, torn down was a victim of the wrecking ball in 2001, but there is a marker there that denote, denotes where the stadium was and gives a history. It's a Florida state marker. And you can go by there. It's on Northwest 23rd street and 10th Avenue. And the apartment complex where it used to stand, is called the Miami stadium apartments. Oh, that's pretty cool. That, that, yeah. that is really cool. Cause I saw pictures of it and it's a very, for, for a stadium that was built in the 1940s, it has more of a, 50s 1960s if i had to guess i would have guessed that it was built in the 60s because of the way that the roof is 
designed. It has this, this really uh, curved roof, and it doesn't have any poles obstructing views and stuff like that. So it was really a state-of-the-art ballpark when it was built in the night, late 1940s, as you said. Um, do you know what you, you know any of the dimensions of it? Was it a pitcher's park, or do you think it was more of a hitter's park? Oh, definitely a pitcher's park. You know, it was about 360 down the lines, about 400 feet down center, but the wall in center field there was a wall that went I think 23 feet high something I may not have the dimensions perfect so it was very very difficult to hit a home run in that park also playing in Florida if you follow the old Florida International League or the Florida State League you don't see a lot of home runs the humidity and the low altitude here we're basically pretty much at ocean level it's very difficult to hit a home run and a lot of the years that when you follow the Florida State League during the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, typically a home run leader for the league would be around 12 to 15 home runs. One exception was that was in the 70s, Jim Fuller, who later went on to play for the Orioles and Astros for a little bit, he hit 33 home runs one season, and he tied an old record that Ed Levy, Levy had set in 1950, 33 mm-hmm. home runs. Uh, you kind of think, well, 33, you know, that's pedestrian, no big deal. But in the Florida State League, he basically like doubled what anybody else was doing prior to that. Right. So um, and then you have, you know, you had you said that there's a lot of great players that came through the came through South Florida. You know, who are some of the who are some of the really big names that, that came through and played in South Florida for the Miami Marlins, for the other Miami based teams doing, you know, that, that you've discovered in your research and in your writings? Yeah, uh, going back to like, I would say 1946, uh, Paul Weiner, who's a Hall of Famer. He was a player manager for the 1946 Miami Sun Sox. Uh, Let's see, during the 40s and 50s, Pepper Martin, not a Hall of Famer, but a well-known player. He managed not only the Sun Sox, but the Miami Flamingos. And later, he managed one year for the Miami Marlins of the International League. He had a real propensity. He loved Florida. And he was an outdoorsman, and he raced many uh, midget racing cars. And he just loved Florida. It was his kind of place. Uh, Let's see, we had Ferguson Jenkins. 1962 to 63, went on to the majors and had a uh, Hall of Fame career. Uh, Eddie Murray was with the Marlins, or excuse me, by then it was the Miami Orioles. That's right, 1974. Cal Ripken Jr. in 1979 was a member of the Miami Orioles. His dad managed the Miami Marlins in 1967. And when Cal, when his father was managing the team, he used to run around with his brother Billy in the outfield shagging fly balls at Miami Stadium. Wow, that's that's really cool. See, that, that's what I'm talking about, folks. I mean, you have great stories and great uh, anecdotes, you know, from Mr. Z- from Mr. Zigner, you know, talking about this, uh, about the Miami uh, Miami baseball history. In his book, it chronicles all of that. Um, it must have been so much, so many interesting people that you've run across. You know, talking about these guys and talking about these, uh, writing your book and doing research for your book. Who are some of the people that really were instrumental in giving you a lot of the information and a lot of the things that you, you know, to put these books together? Well, I'll give you an interesting uh, person that I spoke to, and I got to speak to him in depth. 
And uh, he really filled me in, uh, was Ferguson Jenkins. When he came to Miami, uh, of course, this was a whole different cultural situation when he came here and he faced the Jim Crow situation and so forth, which was very bad. But, you know, Ferguson has this great optimistic attitude and he didn't let it affect him. And he told me a lot of stories about things that happened to him, how he had to live in a separate part of town. He lived, but this, this was really cool. He lived with his roommates at the Sir John Hotel. Now, if you know of Miami history, the Sir John Hotel was all where all the great performers at the time came to perform. You know, you had Sammy Davis Jr., anybody you could think of who was a famous performer. That was the stop to come to in Miami. Um, Lena Horne would be another example. These were the kind of people that were coming and performing there. And people from all over the city came to the Sir John. But uh, uh, Ferguson talked about there, he said that, you know, they had to kind of accept they weren't allowed to go onto the beach, uh, Miami Beach. They lived closer to Miami Beach than anything. And, uh, but he said his experience overall, the people in Miami treated him well. The players, he said, we were like a team. We all worked together. There wasn't any kind of problems in the clubhouse and we all respected each other. Uh, that was a, one person. Uh, one, another person that played in Miami that was interesting, uh, Maury Wills. For the he Dodgers, right? 1953 Miami Sun Sox. And uh, he also uh, had a, I got to speak with Maury. Um, and I thought that was really an accomplishment. Maury doesn't do interviews with everybody. But when I approached him about, Speaking about the Sun Sox, because, of course, you know, he always gets the Dodgers and so forth, that he was really excited to speak with me because, you know, he never gets to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So he had some interesting insights, and uh, he said how much he enjoyed playing in Miami also. Now, you know, doing my research, I, I realized that there was a lot of different teams. Now, you mentioned the Marlins, you mentioned the Sun Sox, you mentioned the, the Flamingos, and, of course, the the, the, the Miami Giants and the Negro Leagues, of mm -hmm. all the, I mean, how many teams called Miami home that you that you know of going back to say the beginning? I mean, you mentioned that Miami was something of a they had like outlaw baseball, which they weren't associated with any kind of affi or, or affiliated with any league or whatever. But in your research, right. how many different teams called Miami home? Okay, going back to the teens, when you had the first outlaw leagues, that was the Miami Seminoles. They played in a park that was originally called Tatum Field that was built. They built the Orange Bowl next to Tatum Field, later named it Miami Field. And that field existed up until about into the 60s. But it directly butted against the Orange Bowl. That's where uh, the Miami, uh, well, going back, it started with the Seminoles. Later, uh, you had the Magicians played there. Uh, it led up to when the Florida East Coast League started. You had the Wahoos, later the, the Marlins, I'm sorry, the uh, Sun Sox. And uh, the Marlins, of course, they played at uh, Miami Stadium. Miami Beach Flamingos, they played at Flamingo Field, which is uh, on Michigan Avenue in Miami Beach. The park is still there. Really? Interestingly enough, really? my wife and I, we went out and took pictures of the old park. It's been, of course, remodeled, but it's in the exact same location that the Flamingos played at. So, uh, of course, I mentioned earlier that the, after the Marlins had moved, uh, the AAA team had folded. You had the rebirth of the Miami uh, Marlins, 
into the Florida State League, which was originally a Class D league that jumped up to the Class A the following season. When the Orioles assumed that franchise, they maintained the Marlins name from 66 till 70, and then they changed the name to the Orioles. The management felt, especially during the 70s, you know how the Orioles were a dominant team in that area. They right, oh, absolutely. And then so they stayed the Orioles till 81. Uh, the Orioles, uh, because of the situation, the area around Miami Stadium had kind of deteriorated. Uh, there was actually a murder in the ballpark in 1980, and that was kind of the last straw for the Orioles. Oh, wow. And so after that, uh, they went uh, with the San Diego Padres for a short time, two seasons. And then after that, they went independent. But as the independent team moved along, eventually the last three seasons, they were the Miami Miracle. And okay. they uh, played actually half a season in Bobby Maduro Stadium. They moved temporarily to Hialeah and then to Pompano Beach, Florida, where they played their last season under Mike Veck, which was Bill Veck's son. Mike ran the team. Wow. So they just kept it pretty much kept it in the family. We tried to keep it in the family, but, you know, with a few owners along the way. But that was the, a great way to, you know, the, to, to, to talk about that. Now, with the, with the Florida Marlins coming in in 93, that pretty much was, you know, sort of like the end of minor league baseball in Miami. Was there a lot of people that was in opposition for the Florida Marlins coming to Major League Baseball? Or was there like a, you know, a clamor for that? No, there was a clamor for Major League Baseball to come. One of the situations that people had always said in the past was they felt that Miami needed a higher grade of baseball than uh, Class A Florida State. Uh, that wasn't the only problem that was compounding it. But uh, no, people were very open to the Mar uh, Marlin, Florida Marlins getting started uh, because of territorial rights and so forth. That's why the team actually moved to Pompano and later that team moved to Fort Myers, Florida. So, I mean, and, and I remember when I was, you know, when the Marlins started, I was 20 years old in college. And I remember when it started, I said to myself, it's going to be just a matter of time before that team becomes really, really good. And, and I wasn't lying. In 97, they won the World Series. And again, in 2003, Um and especially you have a lot of you have the, the, the Cuban influence and the Dominican influence in South Florida, you know, and I was just, you know, I was thinking about the crowd size and the, the amount of people that would go to the games, you know, when they had the when they had the Miami Marlins and the, and the, and the Sun Sox. Was there a lot of uh, was there a lot of fan interaction between the players? And because I'm, I'm, I could about imagine it being something of a party atmosphere in some of those games. Well, the interesting thing, when they started the first season, the inaugural season, there was a lot of fan interest, a lot of fan interaction. If, if you read my, the two books, uh, Baseball Under the Palms, there's this continuing pattern in Miami. There's this initial excitement, and then the excitement kind of tapers off. And this is following. History repeats itself, and, that, and we discovered that when we wrote the book. Um, the Marlins, of course, as they went along, the Major League Marlins, um, They've always had a problem keeping fans because, as you know, as soon as they win the World Series, they tear down the team. Right. So it happened uh, twice. Right. And so in the community, I think there's a somewhat of a mistrust or a lack of a fan in, more fan interest than there could be as if they had held on to players. As an example, Yelich, Giancarlo Stanton, 
uh, you know, I can name a whole bunch of players over the years that basically they pretty much let go for some prospects and didn't get much in return. If you had to, if somebody came up to you, like, like for example, me, yeah. <laughs> um, ask you, in all of the history of South Florida baseball, with, the, with all of the teams that had called Miami home, mm-hmm. who, would you, who would you point to and say, yes, that's the greatest player that we've ever had here? Who would without that be? A, without a doubt, 56, 57, and 8, Satchel Page. Really? Charisma. I'm talking about the minor leagues. Charisma. Yes. Uh, I mean, he pitched. You have to figure. He's over 50 years old, and he has ERAs some seasons below two. He should have been an all-star all three seasons. Uh, that's another story altogether. But, you know, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that was the era, and it was a, a sad. But, uh, no, Satchel Page, without a doubt, was probably – that's the first name. If you said that, first name that pops in my head, Satchel Page. And it, it had to be his charisma because when you read stories about him and hear stories about him, he was just loaded with not only baseball pitching talent, but he was also just oozing with charisma. You've said it with the charisma and everything. And I know it was almost like the Pied Piper of baseball. Whenever he showed up, people showed up. So, I mean, was that, I mean obviously that was the case down in South Florida. Oh, yeah. When it was her turn to pitch, the attendance would jump. Uh, people would just come out to the ballpark. Uh, it was so funny because sometimes Satchel was used in relief also. And if Satchel didn't feel like coming to the ballpark one day, he didn't come. But he'd be waiting at home. He'd listen on the radio, and he could tell by listening to the game, well, I better get over to the ballpark. They might name me in the end of the game to save this one. So he'd show up in the seventh inning, you know, and he'd go, as example, Don Osborne was his first manager in 56 and 57. He would say, Don, I'm ready. And Don had a lot of faith in him, uh, not originally because he was uh, hesitant to sign Satchel. But when Satchel uh, was approached by Bill Vec to come pitch for the Marlins, Vec told Osborne, he said, well, no, this guy's 50 years old. I don't know. He said, make a deal. And he did the same thing with the Cleveland Indians. He said, pick out your nine best batters, Satchel face them. And if one of them gets a hit, you can make the decision. You don't have to sign him. Satch put down all nine batters and John Osborne was sold. And that's three years of Miami had of one of the greatest pitchers of all time. You know, it is interesting because I never would have imagined you saying Satchel Page. Uh, I never would have imagined it. But now that you think about it and now that I think about it, knowing what I know of Satchel Page, then, yeah, you could see that. You know, you could see him being like one of the – a crowd favorite in South Florida, which is not really truly not easy to do in South Florida for what I understand. Of course, I'm living here in Atlanta and I'm only seeing it from an outside observer, but mm-hmm. Miami is such of a, like you said, a transient city. People come from other places and people, you know, and, and the entertainment value is just as important in Miami as it is winning, you know, more so entertainment than anything. And Satchel seemed like he was just a perfect fit for South Florida. Oh, no, and he was. And so many of the players that I spoke with and both books, both the Baseball Under the Palms and also the Forgotten Marlins, they shared if they played with Satchel, they had stories that were just classic. Some stories I couldn't share. <laughs> Obviously. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, things like Satchel, I don't know. He played the piano. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I did know that. He would go down at night 
and the players, he would be in the lobby of the hotel, wherever they stayed, Toronto, Montreal, Rochester. And they catch him at night, just tickling the keys. They said he could perform professionally if he wanted to. That's how good he was. Wow. Let me yeah. reintroduce you real quick. Sam Zeigner, who, Zigner, who is uh, the author of several books, Baseball Under the Palms, Volumes 1 and Volume 2, and The Forgotten Marlins, a tribute to the 56 through 1960 original Miami Marlins. Um, what do you have? you have anything, any other projects going on right now? Are you working on anything new? Or? Well, I'm kind of formulating a few things. I'm trying to decide what I want to write on next. Um, I haven't come to any decisions. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to do another Florida history piece. I may expand into something more broad into Florida or do something more nationally oriented. So I've got about three or four ideas, and I'm just trying to decide what direction to go right now. Is there a subject of Florida baseball as of right now that's on the top of your head that's like, oh, I would love to learn more about that. Is there anything or baseball related that you're thinking, you're thinking, oh, I want to check this out or I want to do more research on this. Uh, you know, is, is there anything like that right now? Well, that's a great question. Um, yes. Uh, I was thinking about doing something on the baseball parks that don't exist anymore. Kind of inspired me because Miami field is gone now which uh, it's interesting. It was in, would have been right next to where the Miami stadium is now where the Marlins play. Yeah. You know, they tore down the orange bowl to build a ballpark. Right. Uh, but there's quite a few stadiums throughout Florida or ballparks going back to the minor league days that basically all it's a reminder of them is, is a marker somewhere or some of them not even exist anymore. See, see, I, I am a, I, I am a, I'm fascinated with, baseball parks because unlike the other sports in football and in basketball you have to deal with you know 100 yards 53 and two-thirds yards wide and you know 94 feet and stuff like that it's set in stone with the field the, the field or court dimensions are set in stone you can't change them baseball is 90 feet around the bases and then that's it that's all the dimensions that you have in 60 feet 66 feet six inches from home plate then but when the outfield comes along you don't it, it, it varies and you could design it based on your team or vice versa. You could design your, your team based on the park that you play in. And I thought that's very interesting. And having, you know, baseball, baseball parks is something that I've always been fascinated by different parks. You know, like if you see the cover of my, uh, my podcast, you see the polo grounds, which is probably the most oddest park ever with the dimensions as such. So, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why I put it is because I am a I'm fascinated with ball with baseball parks, especially from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Miami Stadium was one of those stadiums that just caught my eye when I first did the research to talk to you. I was like, "Oh, this is this is a cool looking stadium." Because if you look at it from the outside, the, the Art Deco design of the stadium and it is very it evokes the 40s and it evokes you know, baseball. And also it has a Miami flavor to it, you know, with the, with the deck, with the design of it on the outside, it, it seems like it would be in Miami and in Miami has a certain flavor and a certain design, and a certain, certain way about it. That is, that just oozes tropical baseball, which is something I'm fascinated by. I'll tell you, I would love to have gone back to time in time to Miami stadium. Uh, just having the description of it from so many people you walk, you know, like you said, you had the big art deco orange letters, Miami stadium. 
you come in through the ticket booth and there's a mural on the wall denoting sports with the baseball mural right in the middle. Wow. Park, when they opened the park, they had planters of palm trees in, or inside the lobby. Then you go up in up the rafters and there's the park, dark green grass. You got the outfield wall and the palm trees standing guard right behind the outfield wall and the electric sign, uh, <laughs> you know, with the scoreboard on the side. And, uh, and you know, the players on the field. And, and I mean, I would have just, if I could, I would love to have gone back in time and just experienced it in person. My wife did because she grew up in Miami. Her father used to help when he was, um, he had the first organization for the Cuban kids when they came over during the early 60s. And they held tournaments there. So she had a lot of experience with Miami Stadium and, and walking through the stadium and knowing the ins and outs of the stadium. And uh, she actually, when they tore down the stadium, she cried because oh, wow. it was just a part of her life. And it was, uh, it was like losing a member of the family because they had had so many interactions at that ballpark. And you, you notice that, you know, with a lot of people who have, you know, gone like, like I've heard stories about people that have gone, that were from Brooklyn and went to Ebbets Field. And when they tore down Ebbets Field, they, they had this, a similar reaction. It's like, it's like watching the house where you grew up in being torn down. You know, yeah. that's what it's, that's what it was, that's what a lot of people equated to, especially when, you know, and I, I'm, I'm more than sure with your wife is pretty much the same thing. You know, you've been to so many games there and you see it torn down like, oh my God, like a piece of me is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. I, I I felt this. I was a kid growing up in Pittsburgh when I was younger, and when they tore down Forbes Field, it was kind of I was from at a distance, but it just it tore, tore at your heart because I can remember going to games there when I was a kid, and my dad taking me to a game, and you know it's 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 really hard to describe, but it just hurts your heart when you see that. Now I've always wondered about, about Forest Field. Somebody told me that the outfield wall where Bill, Ma- Bill Mazeroski hit the home run in the '60 World Series to clinch it for the for the Pirates. Somebody yes. told me that that wall is still there. Is it? Yes, it is. Really? And there's a building nearby. Uh, I think it's uh, part of the University of Pittsburgh. If you go into the building, they have a, the home plate glass uh, in gla- uh, cased in glass inside the building, and you can actually look down and see the home plate. You know, it's got all the cleat marks in it, or the uh, spike wow. marks from the days when they played. It's really cool. I went back there in 19, no, I went back in 2000. That was the last time I was back there and I saw that. It was for the 40th anniversary of the Pirates 60 World Series win. Wow. You see, see, that's, see, that's some of the things that I'm fascinated by, like old ballparks, like Forest Field, you know, with the brick wall and the ivy. You know, people talk about the, you know, the Wrigley Field and they're famous for the cover, ivy cover walls in the outfield, but Forest Field, they had an ivy cover wall too, you know, and, um, and, and it's amazing that they still have the wall there. That, that's, that's actually, uh, pretty cool. You had made mention earlier also about the dual teams that played in Miami you talked about the, the the Havana Sugar Kings also played in Miami you know talk about that that whole situation yeah the Havana Sugar Kings were part of the AAA International League when there was the floor uh Miami Marlins and that was actually a rivalry with the Marlins because basically Havana is all the flights were chartered and it's a close distance away uh, they used to come in prior to that was the Havana Cubans in the Florida International League 
played the Sun Sox and the Flamingos. Wow. So you had this going back to like 1946, this rivalry, and it just continued when the Florida Marlins joined the International AAA League. So that just carried on. Uh, of course, you know, when Castro came into power, they moved the Havana Cubans to New Jersey. But uh, there's just that, you know, you have a large Cuban population here. So it was a natural uh, rivalry. People just came out when they opened the stadium. As I stated earlier, the first team that they played when they opened up a Miami Stadium was the Havana Cubans. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Tar Tony Zardone, who had played for the Washington Senators, Oh, and also in 1945, he was the first batter. And uh, I actually, it was a friend of his before he passed away. Wow. Uh, was hilarious. He had <laughs> such a personality. Now, I mean, you talk about the Havana Cubans and the Havana Sugar Kings, you know, and you're right. It just seemed like they would be like a natural rivalry, not only geographically, but culturally. You know, you had the Miami, you had Miami, you got Havana, and then you have, you know, the the the, the proximity of the two cities and, and Cuba being right there and, and things like that. I mean, actually, and then it just seemed like that would be just a natural, authentic rivalry. Yeah, and, and even going back to the Florida International League with the um, uh, Flamingos and the Sun Sox, you had Cuban players that played for both teams. Uh, you had Gil Torres and... Um, Oscar Sierra, just to name a few, that played for the Sun Sox. My father-in-law, he was a catcher for the Miami Beach Flamingos. Oh, wow, okay. He played at Flamingo Park. Um, boy, I mean, there's just so, so many players. They, When the Florida International League was going, they discovered that there was this great talent of ball players in Cuba. And so it didn't take long for them to say, hey, we got to sign some of these guys and bring them over. And a lot of these guys were, I mean, Gil Torres one year, one year won over 20 games, and he was a, a player who could play the field and pitch. Wow. Well, Sam, look, I really, really enjoyed this conversation with you today, and uh, I'm glad that you were able to come on. You know, Sam Zigner, the chair, chair, chairperson of the South Florida chapter of the Society of Baseball Research. He's also the author of Baseball Under the Palms, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and also The Forgotten Marlins, a tribute of the 1956 to 1960 original Miami Marlins. Sam, you are a great, great, great guy. I really appreciate you coming on. And whenever, and if you want to come back to talk about anything new, you're more than welcome. Well, thank you, Dana. Just one final word. Anybody that's interested in the books, they're available at Amazon.com and SunburyPress.com. That's S-U-N-B-U-R-Y. All right, man. Good, great plug for your book, man. Thank you so much for coming on, man. We'll talk to you soon, okay? All right. Thank you, Dana. It was a pleasure. Thank you, and you uh, wishing you the best. Thank you.
Hey, I got a couple questions for you. Do you like board games? Do you like sim games? If you answered yeah to both questions, then you're in luck. Play Classic has you covered. Who? Play Classic. It's spelled with two A's. P-L-A-A-Y. Oh, got it. Play Classic Games, the sponsor of this podcast, offers board gamers who love sports the chance to own something unique. Play Classic has realistic simulation board games in hockey, golf, football, baseball, and so much more. Coming soon next year, basketball. When you shop today at sportshistorynetwork.com backslash play, you'll get 10% off your first buy. Just make sure you use the promo code SHN. And while you're on the Sports History Network, be sure to check out all of our podcasts. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. The Pigskin Tales podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Fran Tarkenton and Red Grange, but... Have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast, now streaming on your favorite music platform to get podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports podcast, where we focus on the best of sports history from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there that you could follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And now it's time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Homefield Apparel is a sponsor of our weekly top five where we count down the five biggest historical events of sports history that are celebrating anniversaries and is being brought to you by Homefield Apparel. The college football season is practically here and the best way to show off your school spirit when you attend your team's games and tailgates is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Homefield Apparel. They have a wide range of styles for your favorite team from what with what I call old school logos so not only make you stand out in the crowd, but also show that you are a true fan. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more schools and more styles every day. And on the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen to get 20% off of your next purchase if you refer a friend to the site. It's pretty cool, huh? And also pretty cool is this nice Tulane University hoodie that I got from Homefield Apparel. That's home. This is a place where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel, which is a must-have for your next tailgate. So, once again, Homefield Apparel, where they are fond of saying, wear one for the team. And now, on to our countdown. And this week's countdown deals with historical moments that celebrated anniversaries this week, which includes a baseball legend stepping down to serve his country. And so without further delay, here's our top five events in sports history that took place between the dates of August 21st through August the 27th. Now, number five. The 20th Summer Olympics opens in Munich, West Germany. On August the 26th, 1972, the 20th Summer Olympics opened in Munich, West Germany, marking the first time the Summer Olympics would take place in Germany after World War II. 
Berlin was the site of the 1936 Olympics under the regime of the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. The Olympic model for these games was the cheerful games. However, the tragic events of these Olympics were not so cheerful. These Olympics were overshadowed by the Munich Massacre. In the second week of the games, when 11 Israeli athletes and coaches and a West German police officer was killed by Palestinian terrorists called Black September. Their motivation was the was in there there were more their motivation was the ongoing Palestinian Israeli conflict. Another notable event was the loss of the United States to the Soviet Union in basketball, losing 51 to 50 in a gold medal game. That was not only the first time the United States had lost in basketball in Olympic competition, but it may have been the most controversial ending to a basketball game in the history of the sport. The Soviet Union won most of the gold medals in that Olympic Games, led by Soviet gymnast Olga Korbut, who won a pair of gold medals for the floor exercise and balance beam, and Valery Borzov, who won two gold medals in the 100 and 200 meters in track and field. Number four, Christy Mathewson leaves the Reds to go to war. On August 27, 1918, as manager of the Cincinnati Reds, Christy Mathewson leaves his position as manager of the Cincinnati Reds to join the Chemical Weapons Division during America's participation in World War I. However, Mathewson never reached Europe where the fighting was taking place. Right before deployment, Mathewson was exposed to poison during the drill and seared his lungs. He would only live for seven more years before dying of tuberculosis in 1925. He was best known for as one of the most impressive, impressive and dominating pitchers during the dead ball era. He ranks in the top 10 in baseball history including wins, shutouts and earned run average while playing for John McGraw and the New York Giants. And he was one of the charter members of the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York in 1936. Number three. Colin Kaepernick kneels in protest before an NFL preseason game. On August 25, 2016, before a preseason game against the San Diego Chargers, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick kneels during the national anthem in protest of police brutality and racial inequality in the United States. The following week and throughout the regular season, Kaepernick kneeled during the anthem. The protests received highly polarized reactions with some praising him and his stand against racism and others denouncing the protests. Kaepernick played his college ball at the University of Nevada where he was twice named Western Athletic Conference Offensive Player of the Year and he was named to that award twice and is the only player to amass more than 10,000 passing yards and 4,000 rushing yards in a collegiate career. And after earning the Niners' starting job in the middle of the 2012 season, he led them to their first Super Bowl appearance since 1994 and a return trip to the NFC Championship game in 2013. Number two, speaking of the 49ers, NFL great Jerry Rice retires. On August 24, 2006, regarded by many as maybe the greatest player in NFL history, Hall of Fame wide receiver Jerry Rice retires from the National Football League. Born in Starkville, Mississippi in 1962, Rice played 20 seasons in the NFL, most notably with the San Francisco 49ers and was noted for the 49ers. Uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame names him as the most prolific wide receiver in NFL history with staggering career totals. He was a three-time Super Bowl champion with the 49ers and was named Super Bowl 23's most valuable player. He was named the NFL Offensive Player of the Year 
13 times that was named to the Pro Bowl 10 times and named to the Pro Bowl 13 times and was a 10-time first-team All-Pro. That's easy for me to say. He holds, still holds the record for the most career receptions, receiving yards, receiving touchdowns, most touchdowns, and most all-purpose yards. And finally, the top historical moment between the dates of August 21st through August the 27th, Cincinnati Reds manager and baseball great Pete Rose banned from baseball for gambling on games. On August the 24th, 1989, Pete Rose, then managing the Cincinnati Reds, was formally banned from baseball amidst accusations that he gambled on games while he played for and managed the Reds. The charges of wrongdoing including claims that he bet on his own team. Rose admitted in the 2004 interview that he actually did bet on baseball and on the Reds. Pete Rose played most of his career with the Cincinnati Reds and was a key member of the famed Big Red Machine, the Cincinnati Reds team that won back-to-back -back World Series in 1975 and in 1976. He would add a third World Series title to his ring, to his ring total with the Philadelphia Phillies in 1980. He was National League Most Valuable Player in 1973 and World Series Most Valuable Player in 1975 after beating the Red Sox in an epic seven-game World Series. During his long career, he amassed 4,256 hits, the most in Major League Baseball history, and was named to 17 All-Star teams. And that will conclude the Home Field Apparel Top 5. And coming up next, we're going to send a shout out to one of the best known and best loved sports traditions here in America that take place in the month of August every year in an idyllic town in western Pennsylvania. Stay tuned. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday's Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. And we're back. And to close out our show is our usual shout-out segment. And this week we're going to send a shout-out to the Little League World Series. Now, this past week in 1947 was the very first Little League World Series with where they saw a team called the Maynard Midgets defeat the Lock Haven All-Stars 16-7. And back then there was only 12 teams, 11 from Pennsylvania and one from New Jersey that made up the tournament field. Now today, 20 teams from around the world descend on the small idyllic town of Williamsport, Pennsylvania to take part in the Little League World Series, played at a pair of stadiums. Of course, you got Howard J. Limity Stadium and Volunteer Stadium in South Williamsport. Now, initially, only teams from the United States competed in this series, but it has since become a worldwide tournament. The tournament has gained popular renown, especially in the United States, where games from the series and even from the regional tournaments are broadcast on ESPN. 
Teams from the United States have won the plurality of the series, although from 1969 through 1991, teams from Taiwan dominated the series, winning 15 out of those 23 years. Taiwan's dominance during those years had been attributed to a national effort to combat its perceived diplomatic isolation around the world. From 2010 through 2017, teams from Tokyo, Japan similarly dominated the series, winning five of those championships. The current dynasty is actually located here in the States, in Honolulu, Hawaii, winning two of the previous four Little League World Series championships they competed for. And in 2020, the series was actually canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And all through in the 75-year history, there have been a lot of notable events that took place during the tournament. In 1952, a team from Montreal became the first team from outside the United States to play in the the Little League World Series. And five years later, a team from Monterey, Mexico became the first team from outside the United States to win it. In 1971, future Major League player and manager Lloyd McClendon hit five home runs and five five official at-bats over a span of three games. And he was intentionally walked his other five plate appearances. However, one of the most famous Little League World Series was in 1982, when a team from Kirkland, Washington defeated Taiwan in the championship which snapped a 31-game winning streak by Taiwan, prompting announcer and host of host of Wide World of Sports, Jim McKay, to declare that it was the biggest upset in the history of Little League. There have been teams from the Caribbean and the Far East, as well as Europe and Australia, and in 2012, for the first time, a team from Africa reached Williamsport. Over 75 summers, the Little League World Series has become more than just a baseball tournament. It has become a national tradition. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And I would like to thank you for taking time out of your day to give us a listen. And i also like to thank our guest, author and writer Sam Zeigner, Zigner, I should say, for joining us this week. And if you like what you hear here, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please follow me at historicallysp2 on Twitter and also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm your host, Dana Augusta, saying thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, 
or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.